Well, if you would take out your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, I am going to um, finish last week's sermon. Um, Last week, uh, we began looking at a second section of Paul's praise to God for the great salvation that he's accomplished on our behalf. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to be looking at the, the second part of the work of the Son of Jesus Christ on the cross. And uh, so as is our custom, we're going to read from God's Word and then pray, and then we will dig in to what God has to say to us this morning. Uh, let me just announce before I read, too, that um, November 21st, I believe, is in the budget as a, as a meeting, in the budget, in the bulletin, as a meeting date for us to gather together congregationally to vote on our budget as a church. And so uh, I just want to put that out there. Budget is available today. You can grab that. And I'll, I'll actually speak a little bit more on that as we, as we talk in, in the message this morning. So uh, let's, let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 14, and then we'll pray and look at God's word. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy And blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time to open up your word And we pray that as we put aside our anxieties and concerns and come to place ourselves before you spiritually to be fed by your word, we pray that you will speak to us words that we need to hear. Father, we know that each and every message that we hear from your word may not be immediately relevant. There may be times that we hear things that we need to store in the barn until the the time is right. We may need to save something up and to wait until the, the time 
is ready. But we thank you that your word is always relevant, that it always speaks to us something which we will one day need. And we pray that we would be like the people. We would be the people who are like the man that Jesus described in his parable, who built a house on the rock, who dug the foundation deep and built it strong because he knew that a storm was coming. Maybe not in the coming week. Maybe not in the coming months. Maybe not for a few years, Lord. Our individual storms may not come, but come they will. And we pray that we would be those who have a faith which is built firmly on your word, that we might endure the storm that comes. Father, we thank you for the great salvation that we have been given. Father, in your electing work from eternity past, you have predestined us for adoption and you have shown your great grace to us and we thank you for that. And we thank you that in the Son, we have redemption and forgiveness according to the riches of your grace. And we pray that as we consider this morning knowledge, I pray, Father, that this sure and sovereign blessing from you that you've accomplished through your Son. I pray that it would give us encouragement and boldness and grace to stand in this place, to be confident in the salvation that you've given to us, and then to enable us to minister. Father, may we not grow weary of doing good. May we continue to labor for you and for your glory. We pray your grace on this time in your word now, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as we turn to God's word this morning, I want to be um, aware of, of, of not committing um, a, a pulpit sin, and that is to, uh, as, as defined by, by a good close friend of mine, putting so much tape on the box um, that, that it cannot uh, easily be ripped off and we don't get to the matter of, of the message. It's, it's possible at times to so pack something, um, you know, you, maybe you've gotten this, you've gone to a store, you, uh, you, you take the package home, you begin to open it and it, you find out that there's just tons and tons of wrapping and packing and, and inside is this tiny little thing. I don't believe that's what we've got in our message this morning, but the potential for me to ramble on and on and on and on and on before we get to the point is great. We are, some of you think that's what I do every week. Um, it's not. There's design here. Um, we are in the second section of the three sections of Paul's great praise to God at the beginning of the book of Ephesians. In verses 4 through 6, God, uh, Paul praises God the Father for the election that he worked in eternity past. God administers salvation through sovereign selection. In the next three verses, this is what we began to look at uh, last week, verses 7 through 10, we see the work of the Son and why we should praise God for the ministry of Jesus Christ, His Son, who redeems us, achieves salvation for us, and accomplishes our salvation, which we possess if we believe in Christ. We are not waiting 
to be saved. We are not nervous as believers, or we shouldn't be. And if you are, let me comfort you with this encouragement. Jesus Christ has purchased our redemption on the cross, and we can possess it and know that we have it, even though we do not see him now as Lord and Savior in our physical presence. Paul will then move on to the Spirit, and we're going to go and look at verses 11 through 14 next week. But last week, we talked about redemption and forgiveness and did not get to the section on knowledge. So I would like to cover that this morning and, and raise the question of, of the importance of knowing, the importance of having assurance of information. My wife can tell you that as a young man, about 21 or 22, that I had struggled in my late high school years and then in my early college years, I had struggled with all kinds of deep questions about how can we know anything? How can we know what we know? I was a art major at college, although I had a, a desire to take history classes and, and philosophy classes and read a lot of, of books by people who uh, I respected and, and had a lot of consideration of, of their intelligence. Many of these people convinced me that it was impossible to know anything of great significance, that we couldn't know anything about the origin of the universe, that we couldn't know anything about right or wrong, that everything was relative. And that knowledge did not free me from the burdens and guilt of living in modern society. What we have going on in our culture today, in many places, there are people who are saying, okay, we are all evolving and there is no God to tell us uh, what, what it is we should or should not do. Um, or the God that's up in heaven is just kind of sitting on his throne. He's controlling things. He makes nice weather and he finds us parking spaces, but he's not really concerned with what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. That's, that's the God of our, of our culture. He's not really in charge of anything. You know, maybe he maintains some things. The problem that we're facing in our society is that as the foundations of our knowledge crumble, people feel hopeless and aimless and, and pointless. My own personal testimony is this. That when I was sitting reading my Bible one night, not very much what I would call a believer. Living a good life outwardly, going to church, had a wonderful fiance, you know, good parents. Sitting reading my Bible, and I came to the account of the resurrection. And I read another passage where Paul said, sorry, Peter said, that God raised Christ from the dead and that one day there would be a judgment. There would be an account taken and that all men would be responsible to this man who would come and judge the world. Suddenly I had this bold awareness, a supernatural realization 
that the knowledge that this man had been raised from the dead and would one day return and stand on the earth and judge all men and women, and we would all have to give an account to him, I suddenly became powerfully convinced that that knowledge could either be ignored and there would be no difference in my life or it would change everything. When we look at the ministry of the Son, as laid out in Ephesians, in this beginning passage, we see that we have, verse 7, redemption through His blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace, which He lavished upon us. But then, as we look on in verse 8 and into verse 9, it says that God, in all wisdom and insight, made known to us, the mystery of his will according to his purpose. God has given us a blessing, a complete set of knowledge of everything that he's about in the world. And as a church, that should either challenge us or, and change us, energize us to go and do his will, or if we ignore it, we can find many small purposes that we can pursue, many kinds of dreams that from the outside may look great to the world, and people may say, yay, look at what that church is doing. But ultimately, it will not be the heart of what God desires to do in and through us as his people. Does that, does that make sense? Let's talk about the blessing of knowledge. God the Father has blessed us with knowledge. It says, in all wisdom and insight, that God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God is making known to us, or he has made it known in Christ, the mystery of his will. Let's just break this section down as we, as we look to it for its implications. The, the word that Paul uses first is he says that God does this in all wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom uh, today in our culture, I believe, is, is stuff that can be condensed to be put on calendars, right? Um, or, or things that you find in little books at Barnes & Noble, right? The books are getting increasingly smaller, right? Books that you used to just give to babies that had like eight pages in them that were all printed on cardboard. There are, there are big, fat books now that are small books like that that you can pay uh, $15 for and, and get the condensed jumble of, of somebody's theological or philosophical or religious thoughts. And, and you just kind of flip, that's wisdom, little nuggets. But that's not what the Bible means when it talks about wisdom. When the Bible refers to wisdom, it's talking about the knowledge which sees into the heart of things, which knows them as they really are. There are some of you out there who are wise. You see something going on in business, and you say, this is exactly what we should do here. And, and it turns out to be the right thing because there is this principle in your mind. You have a perception into the ways of, of human interaction, the way that business works, and you say, right decision, wrong decision. There are some of you who know who to stay away from and who to trust your secrets to because you have wisdom into the functioning of people. I call that having witch powers because I, I, I have no perception of that. I'm just like people. I don't know what people are like, really. I just people. 
but, but some people, you just have this perception into people, you know who they are. How did you know that about that person? It's amazing to me. Knowledge which sees into the heart of things, which knows them as they really are. God the Father possesses this wisdom. He knows all things as they really are. But he also possesses insight, which is the understanding and the discernment that leads to right action. He possesses wisdom, and he also possesses insight, which means when combined together, he looks and sees the exact right thing that should be done in every single situation. In his best-selling book um, called Blink, Malcolm Gladwell talks about a man who is an expert on statues. A new museum was opening up, and they had acquired this, uh, this, this Roman statue, and it had been tested. It had been dated. Uh, the paper trail had been authenticated. This was a genuine, real statue, and they needed this kind of statue for their museum in order to, to, to be a functioning, real, genuine, up-to-date art museum. They needed this ancient piece of art, and so they, they, they acquired the statue, and they, and they brought it in, and then they brought in the experts to come and to praise the museum and to say what a, what a fantastic museum it was. Now, they brought in a man who was an expert on statues who'd spent years and years and years studying these old Roman statues. And as he walks in, you know, he's, he's got the reports and he's read them and he knows that it's been dated and he knows that, that the craftsmanship is genuine and he's seen the paper trail, who's owned it and all the hands it's been passed through. And he walks in and one glance at the statue, he says, can you get your money back? And they said, why? He says, it's fake. How do you know it's fake? He said, I, I just look at it and I know. Well, turns out it was fake. And after examining all the evidence, it turned out to be a very well-done forgery. The ability to make perfect decisions based on knowledge. Some human beings possess this in different areas. God possesses this in every area of his life. He knows all things. He loves more fully than any human being. He is more compassionate than any human. He is more just. He is more righteous. He is more true. He is more holy. And he possesses all these things in perfection. And so, when he makes a decision, when he wills something, when he desires something, it is perfect and results in the perfect end for which he has decided it. God's great wisdom and insight are made known to us in what the Bible calls the mystery of his will, okay? What we have in the blessing of knowledge in Jesus Christ is the sure explanation of the mystery of his will. Now, many of you may be thinking, oh, this is going to be a sermon on God's will. Yes, but not a sermon on a narrow, specific will for our life. We'll get that in Ephesians 5.17. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's, that's a, referring to our, the, the individual will of God for our life, and so we'll, we'll have that later. Uh, but what he's talking about here is the overarching narrative story of the world, the grand purpose that's threaded through all that God has done and all that he is doing and all that he's continuing to do and will do extending into eternity. 
Okay, let me appeal very quickly for the right use of the word mystery when we refer to the Bible. Okay, Paul says, in all wisdom and insight that God is making known to us the mystery of his will. Certain things are hard to understand, right? Like the relationship between God's absolute sovereignty and our free will. Okay, difficult to understand. Bible teaches God's absolute sovereignty, teaches our free ability to make decisions. That is something which we, when we talk about it, we should not call it a mystery. We should call it something very hard to understand. Because a mystery is something which at one time was unsearchably hidden, but is now definitively revealed. Okay? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Imagine God's treasure chest and the secret stuff's in there. Free will, God's sovereignty, it's in that box. We're not going to figure it out. But, Deuteronomy 29, 29, But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. Why? so that we may do all the words of this law. There are things which God has definitively revealed to his church, and they are ours. If God makes known to us the mystery of his will, we can know it. And we shouldn't say God's will is mysterious. We should say the mystery is that no one knew it, and now it's been unlocked, and now it's open, and now we know it, and we can live in it and say, yes, we know God's will. He made this mystery of his will known to us in all wisdom and insight according to his purpose. This is a good word, the word purpose, but it's a warmer word than than what we might think that you could translate it this way, good pleasure. If you look back at verse 5, you'll see that predestination, choosing some to be saved, is also according to God's good pleasure. I love this quote from Pastor William Hendrickson. He says, we learn from this set of verses that the Father, far from being less loving than the Son, takes special delight in planning whatever must be planned in order to bring about the salvation full and free of men who had plunged themselves into misery and ruin, and he takes equal pleasure in telling them about his marvelous plan. God the Father is not only pleased to save men and women, but he's pleased to say, and this is what I am going to do. This is my will. I'll make it plainly known to you. What Paul is saying here is that God has set his purpose majestically before all men and women and children who will pay attention to his word and hear it. He's made it known to all people in Christ. God set this purpose forth in Christ as the central element, the main story in history, to sum all things up, to unite all things under his authority, under the rulership of his son. Verse 10 says that God's uniting all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, I want to give you a very quick speed summary of the history of salvation just to, to bring this Uh, to to your mind so that you say, yes, I agree. And then I want to move on to how is this will specific to Harvest Baptist Church 
this morning. Some of you have commented in the past that there are some sermons which are specifically relevant to our church and not just for any church. This will hopefully be one of them for you. Salvation history. God creates man and women in his image and says, fill the world with the image of God. Subdue the earth. Produce resources and buildings and designs and inventions. Make this place wonderful but full of the image of God. And what happens? Men and women sin. They distort that image and they fall, right? God then looks at the world in Genesis chapter 6 and he sees that the world is filled with violence. The Bible says that every thought of man's heart was only wicked all the time and so God floods the world. Humanity refuses to spread out. They build a tower. And so God splits them into nations so that he will not have to destroy the whole world again because he has a plan. He's revealed that plan in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent. And he says, your seed will war with her seed. You're going to bite her seed on the heel, but with his foot, he's going to crush your head. And so we have this image of a constant war between the serpent and the children of the woman. God chooses one man after flooding the whole world, after creating nations. He chooses one guy, Abraham. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he says, summarizing, follow me. I will make your name great. I'll give you many children, and I'm going to bless the whole world in your lineage. Through one of your children, I will save the whole world. God chooses one man out of all men, one being out of all beings. He sends that nation into Egypt for 400 years as they begin to grow. Abraham has some kids. They go down into Egypt, right? And they begin to multiply. They become a vast number of people. You see that promise? Genesis 15, 12 through 16. God takes this nation, the Jews, and he draws them out of Egypt in a cosmic fight with Pharaoh. The people build a tabernacle. And God comes down and dwells in their midst in all of his glory in the tabernacle. But yet, the whole nation is not sold out to follow him. Because what do we see throughout these books? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, sand, right? Funerals, people dying left and right as they oppose God and God judges them, punishes them, kills them. Because even though there is a nation now of people, they are not fully sold out to him. There are some who are and some who aren't. The nation grows. God gives them a land to live in. Joshua brings the people in. They plant on that land. The nation spreads out and loses its way for a time, but God raises up a man to be king called David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, God promises David this. David says, first, I'm going to build a house for you, God, where, where nations will come and worship you. And he says, no, 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 David. Did I ask you to build a house for me? You don't build a house for me. I build a house for you. And in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We see coming this child of Abraham, this 
child of David, that there will be a saving king who will do great and mighty works and save the whole world. But that nation refuses to follow God. God destroys, he scatters them, and then regathers them to prove that they need him in their midst. Not just that because they're blessed, they can be a nation and behave any way they want. He makes them this promise that they need him, and he promises to bring that to pass. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. God says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, uh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's not just going to live amidst a sinful nation with some who desire to follow him. He's going to live in the heart of purified men and women. God himself will dwell in humanity like he did in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned and died spiritually. How does God do this? He sends Christ to die on the cross that we might be redeemed, that we might receive forgiveness and know the fullness of his will. Do you see what's happening here? God takes one man and turns him into a nation. And the nation sort of serves God. There's a clump of people in the nation that, that serve God. And then what God does is he takes it to the next stage. And the next stage is a group of people, you could call it a church, where it's no longer a nation. Everyone in this organization now knows God. Everyone has recognized their need to know God, and they have believed in the gospel and received forgiveness of their sins. Now, I'm not talking about the church visible, because there can be any number of people in a church each and every week, people who don't know God, people who don't believe the gospel, people who want to use the gospel for their own end and gain. And so this visible church is still like that nation where everybody's not 100% sold out, but everybody who's really in the church and part of the universal church, the church that God sees, they know God. They have his spirit in them. They have a heart that desires to follow him, even though perhaps not perfectly, God is working in them. What comes next? Jesus returns sets up a kingdom that reigns for a thousand years where the rules and ways of God run the whole earth. After a thousand years, the devil is set free again and men go back to their sinful ways and in a cosmic conflict, the devil and all those who follow him are thrown into the lake of fire. And what lasts for eternity? A purified group of people who fully follow and serve God. Do you see what he's doing throughout history? bringing all things under his authority and control. It was ruined in the garden, but God made a promise in the garden to bring a ruler, a leader, an authoritative king to govern the people. And he calls that king Jesus Christ. We live in the middle of history. 2010, yes, 2010 years after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, but but it's not the end of the story. We know what happens next. We're living in a day and age where we're to be proclaiming the gospel to every man, woman, and child, inviting them to be reconciled to God by faith in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, for the redemption of their soul, and to become part of the knowledge of what God is doing in the world. 
bringing all things under the lordship of Christ. That makes knowing the will of God for our life as a church very simple, doesn't it? Proclaim the gospel. Make disciples. Display your love for one another. And that will be the information that people need to know that you are the children of God. Send missionaries. Be faithful. I love Hendrickson's quote. In the light of that, let's just read that again, and then we're going to talk about specifically for harvest here. We learn from this verse that the Father, far from being less loving than the Son, takes special delight in planning whatever must be planned in order to bring about the salvation full and free of men and women who had plunged themselves into misery and ruin. And he takes equal pleasure in telling them about this marvelous plan. Do we know what we need to know as a church in order to live in the will of God? Absolutely. We understand the mystery of his will. All things under Christ for all eternity. This is what God is doing in the world. We, as the church, are participating in the grand reunification of all things in the universe. Revelation 21.5 says, He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 2 Peter 3.13 says, According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How is that kingdom being populated? Through the proclamation of the gospel as men and women say yes to the saving death of Jesus Christ. They become citizens of that kingdom. And they engage the righteousness of God. Now, we know this as a church, and this is a great blessing. We're the people of God, and we know his purpose for ourselves. We know our purpose, and we can choose to ignore our purpose and see no difference in our life, or we can choose to engage our purpose and have that change us from a random kind of fire, perhaps to a heat-seeking missile that's on target. We're here in Salisbury in 2010, and we know our purpose. What difference does it make to know it. Today we hand out a 2011 projected budget and for many of us as we look over it it's going to be the story of the last five years. More of the same. We're looking forward to another year of more of the same. More than 50% of our budget goes into facilities. Just about 40% of our budget goes into paying our staff. And for one or two items, one and a half percent of our budget goes into ministry and then less than one percent of the rest of it in each area goes into practically fulfilling what it is that God's will is for the church. So I want to challenge you as members and attenders and givers, I want you to ask this question as you review the budget. Because in 2011, we're going to have to make an important decision as a congregation. And that is, where do we live? I want you to ask this question as you review the budget. What could we do 
with more of what we already have. When you look what we pay to live, to meet, to worship where we are, is the benefit of permanence enough for our church? We need to open a conversation. This is my attempt to do that this morning among ourselves with great care and humility. What should we do when our lease runs out? What would we do if we were able to use more of what we bring in on a weekly basis for actual ministry? Think about what we value as a church. For several years, we've been building a consensus of values around the Word of God, asking the question, what do we believe? Which is actually the question, what does God believe? What does God value? How does he call us to serve? And I believe I can answer that question with a number of points. We value family. We are mostly a young church, many of us busy at business, hard at work, busy raising families, caring for grandkids, some of us launching kids out into the world, college, careers, Lots of programs and required meetings do not appeal to our people, though we love to eat together and enjoy one another. We value quality. We don't want to do a lot poorly. We want to do a few things well, and we're focusing our energies on doing that. I'm very, very, very excited about some changes on the horizon for our kids' worship program during the main service. A couple people have a fire for it to see some great things happening. We've got some other great things going on week in and week out. We value humility, friendship, and the authority of God's word and Christ's lordship in our relationships. Many of you through good times and bad times here at Harvest have so encouraged me and built my affection for you by asking me hard, heartfelt questions and engaging in deep conversation. I love that. Humility, friendship, and the authority of God's word under the lordship of Christ. I believe many of us value good stewardship. We want to be an effective, ministering church, not locked into an endless cycle of maintenance. Speaking for the elders, I think I can confidently say that the people of this church long to care for the staff and to put our resources toward ministry. As a church, I believe I speak for you when I say that when you're frustrated, many of you express that we want to put more resources into our ministries, discipling our children, reaching out to the lost and to the community, doing good works as a church, we want to raise up and release people who are trained to minister. We want to train pastors, counselors, small group leaders, Bible study leaders. We want to support missionaries as they take the gospel to places where it is not already being proclaimed. And we want to train teams to support those ministries. But I believe as we look back at the past of God's redemptive plan throughout history, we realize that God has been building his church for 2,000 years, and it is unlikely, not completely outside of God's will, it is probable that he will not return in this generation, and there will be more work to be done. So I believe many of you want to rightly achieve a financial stability that allows this 
present generation to rejoice at the birth of our youngest members, to support each other at our children's wedding, to be there to encourage each other as we go to our eternal rest. We want to leave a legacy of gospel faithfulness to the next generation when the youngest among us is an old man or an old woman at a business meeting. We want that member to speak of this generation as faithful. So I want to encourage those of you who give faithfully and who give, I believe, I'm just going to speak frankly here, I believe many of you nobly engage in large giving for this church. Some of you don't give anything. You want to adjust that. Some of you give a great deal of money and feel frustrated knowing that so little of what you give goes to actual ministry expenses. And I just want to applaud your continued effort in maintaining this church. Let me urge you to continue and persevere. Let's continue to watch God work through this church through our hard times as we step out in acts of faith and hope and love. And please... Do not make the mistake of looking at our financial figures and not taking 2010 and 2009 into account. Things are bad and people are struggling everywhere. But let me challenge you to think hard about what comes next and open the door to the conversation. We know God's will for our church. We know what God wants. He wants to raise up people who are passionately on fire for Jesus Christ and who obey Him and love Him and see Him as the center of their lives, the Lord of all that they have. And we want to release those people out into the world to change it for God's glory. So we need to ask the question, what is the best way to be that church in the light of the knowledge of His will? We make a decision about our facility in 12 months. So let me challenge you that we spend the next 12 months becoming in greater degree the church. I want to challenge some of you, perhaps several of you, rise up and plan fellowship events where we eat and enjoy one another. Our church loves to do this. We, we are desperate for leaders to champion this. Continue to discuss sermons and Sunday school and meet in small groups and build a strong doctrinal unity. Build family relationships. I'll tell you what. I left Union in great pain over thinking that I might never meet a group of people that I would love as much as the people in Union. But as some of you have opened your hearts and your lives to me, I feel like I have known you all my life. And I count many of you among my dearest friends. And I want newcomers to this church to know the good of being in God's family and to have what we have. So let's press on in that growth together. But let us have the conversation we need to ask the question, with little in savings, how do we move from maintenance to ministry? Is there any way to move from here into a building that we own? Should we rent a less expensive facility? Perhaps we get a less fashionable facility. 
Should we strategically retreat into a school or a banquet hall so that we can bring and bank more of what we bring in and champion ministry and outreach programs with some of it and support missionaries with some of it and, and give resources to train our congregation with some of it and, 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 and do great and mighty things with more of what we bring in each and every week. We have to have this discussion. Now, I, I come to the end of what I've got to say, and I'm not sure how to stop at all, other than to say this. Jesus Christ is worth whatever we go through having this discussion. We know God's will for us. He is summing all things up in Christ. We are succeeding as a church. And don't let one week's attendance, I mean, how many people are sleeping in from trick-or-treating this morning? I see a, I see a, I see a largely populated church this morning. Um, maybe it wasn't when we, when we started, but, but there's a bunch of people here, and I know where half the people who are missing are. And they've not gone to some other church this morning. They're like in Pennsylvania and Virginia and stuff. <laughs> and those of you who are listening to this on CD and you're in Pennsylvania and Virginia, stop going away so much. Um, 2010 is not the time to judge success or failure based on financial figures. Now, I just want to say two more things, and then I'm going to be quiet. Significant decisions made in the life of this church have come at great personal cost to many of you. And I just want to let you know, I feel intense pain and keen loss over some of the people who've walked away from us as we've made important decisions. And I want you all with me. I want to make a decision as a family. We want to do whatever comes next. We want to say yes and be all together and be strong. Because I believe that this is a financially powerful church in the eyes of God. And I believe this is a spiritually powerful church in the eyes of God. And I believe that the decisions that you have made over and over again, before I got here through the time with Pastor Lee, and, 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 and even before that, you have made decisions as a church that have demonstrated that you want to stand for what God says in his word, and you want to honor Jesus Christ and lift him up and see him work through you. And I think we are on the road to great and mighty things. It may not look as glorious as some of what's going on in some of the hugest churches in America. But in the eyes of God, following his will in all things is glorious. And he is the one whose praise we ultimately want as we break the tape on the final day. And he says, well done, good and faithful servants. May we stand together. At, amen. That's a good, amen. As we stand together at that great potluck, you know. And he says to us, well done, good and faithful church. We want to be there together. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this people, your people, and I thank you for your word, and we thank you for the blessing of knowledge in Jesus Christ. Lord, we are perhaps on Reformation Day initiating a kind of a financial reformation. We are nailing these theses to the door of our church and saying this is these are the principles that should guide our conversation as we go forward. And Father, we know that, that, the, that the, the situation is bleak for us in many respects by which the world gauges success. But from the way in which 
the church gauges success in transformation of hearts and minds and lives sold out to you, Lord. We see great success each and every week. Father, I pray that you would enable us to leave the land of our captivity and to enter into a promised land where we are able to fully devote ourselves to you. Father, we want to be sold out for your glory, and we want to put our money where our mouth is. And so, Father, we entrust this conversation to you. I thank you for the faithfulness of so many in giving and working and laboring week in and week out for the good of this church and the good of the gospel here. And we just pray, Father, that you would vindicate that work, that investment, as we meet and discuss and make decisions over the next year. Father, I pray that we would love one another as we suggest radical options and as we discuss safe options and as we choose what's next. Father, we want to do it for your glory and for our joy in you. So we commit this to you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name.